season will be here before we know it. That's why we got a new episode of Pitch Pass this week. Last week, too much Lucho Acosta craziness. Everything was so fluid. Wouldn't have made any sense to put an episode out. Also, I'm very lazy. But before we get into this week's episode, let me remind you that I have another podcast that I would love for you to listen to. It's called The Sphere of Roach. We just talk about random things that are interesting to me. If you'd love some more about me, that's the podcast to do it in. You can get it through the iHeartRadio app, which is also where you can listen to the all-new Ron Burgundy podcast through the iHeartRadio app. Or wherever you do get your podcast. Let's get to this episode. Pitch Pass, your all-access credential to the people that matter in MLS. Here's your host, Greg Roach. Welcome, thank you so much for tuning in to listening to this episode of Pitch Pass. I'm not sure if you're listening through the iHeartRadio app or maybe through iTunes. Wherever you're listening, could you just follow, subscribe to this podcast? If you're listening through iTunes, thank you. Could you leave a rating? It helps in some sort of way. You want to go comment? Well, I'm not going to stop you. I'm just going to thank you for taking the extra effort. Akeem Ward is DC United's first-round draft pick, recently signed to the club, and he will be joining us later on Pitch Pass. First, though, we go to, I'm going to call him my friend because we've had some interactions over the year. We spent some time in the same town back in the day. Now he writes for The Athletic. He covers all things American soccer for The Athletic. It's Paul Tenorio. And you know, Paul, I introduced you as from The Athletic. I can't help but feel a little responsible for being the one that got you to The Athletic. Yeah, you punked me up early on to the to the the higher ups at the company, and um, you know eventually they came looking for me. So thank you. I was just a subscriber too. I don't want people to go, "Wow, Roach has got some behind the scenes juice." I was just a subscriber. I noticed that they hadn't really ramped up any of their soccer coverage, and it was just around that time that you kind of were were between gigs. And I I reached out to whoever the managing director was in Philly at the time, and I was like. Hey, you know what? If you're looking for a guy, this guy's awesome, and he's 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 looking for a gig right now. And uh, I guess it, it's kind of started off, and maybe you were already in negotiations, but uh, I'm really glad that you're there, and uh, I feel like your role at The Athletic, especially for the soccer coverage, is pretty important. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, as, a, as an Athletic subscriber, and I guess we can – I'll carry a little water so you don't have to for The, uh, for the Athletic. How does that work? Because in that time that I sent that email out, there was maybe – a half of a writer or maybe some freelance writers for the athletic. And since then, almost every time a team or a city has come online as part of the athletic coverage, they have included an MLS uh, reporter to cover the team in ever that city. And I, I think it's awesome. And it's a credit to the athletic. How does that kind of work with you as the, uh, the person covering the league and then having those different uh, beat writers in the cities covering the teams? Yeah, I think, you know, my job is to kind of be the the centerpiece of that team and, and to try to coordinate, try to help coordinate. I mean, we're still new at this. I mean, I, I started at The Athletic in May. We've been growing and expanding as a company, and I think our soccer coverage is going to keep growing and expanding and changing, and we're going to rethink about how we do things and what we target. But the, the goal is to create a network of reporters and a team of reporters that can work together to to break news and to find the best stories in every single market. And you know, because the, the model of the athletic as a company, what's really cool about it is, you know, 
when you're at a newspaper or another outlet, you, your your bottom line is dictated by clicks, right? I mean, that's that's how you drive advertisement uh, uh, revenue. And the more clicks you get, the more money you can charge for ads, et cetera, et cetera. And with The Athletic, because we're subscription-based, the whole model is how can we get people to subscribe? So it's all about telling stories differently than what everyone else is telling. And so that's what we're trying to do with soccer. And um, it's been great, you know, to be able to work with guys like Pablo Mar yep. in D.C. or Jeff Reuter in Minnesota, Felipe Cardenas in Atlanta. We've got such a great team of writers around the country. And for me, it's been awesome to get to know them all better, to work with them on stories, to, to kind of um, build stories together or break news together. It, it's, it's exciting because, like I said, we're still at the beginning of this, and I think we're just going to keep getting stronger. And the fun part uh, for me as a, as a MLS and American soccer fan you knew that they were, you guys were going to ramp up the international coverage. And when that all came online, and I can't remember when it was, maybe September-ish, it was, I, was, I was excited because I was like, all right, they're investing more money in soccer. But I was also a little concerned because I was like, well, once people start ramping up European coverage, it tends to start leaning really heavily into the European coverage. You guys haven't done that. Uh, you, like you said, you have a staff of, of people who cover the MLS teams. And I think that's really awesome. And, and you know... It makes sense if you're going to describe it as a subscription-based model because if you if there are 2,000 hardcore MLS fans in every city, and there's obviously way more than that, if you guys get all those people subscribing, then you're already doing the business that you need to do, and then you can focus on the stories in MLS. That that makes sense to those 2,000 people. For sure. And I, and I think the, the idea, too, is you know, when you look at growing a company and building a company – um, we, we, we've had a lot of growth in a short amount of time in hiring writers and in trying to bring in a bigger, bigger, and bigger audience. Um, the, the fear of subscriptions is that, you know, eventually you'll hit a ceiling. Um, but I think when you look at soccer, that's the one sport where there is no real ceiling. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of growth in this country still to come. Um, there's growth going on right now in front of our eyes when you look at Major League Soccer. And then you've got the, the whole globe worth of an audience uh, for as you continue to expand coverage. So um, that's what's exciting about the soccer and, and the soccer part of the athletic. And I think also, um, you know, you're right. I, it, the other part of it is that the subscribers drive our, our coverage. Um, what people are interested in, what people will subscribe for, what people are reading and in, how they're interacting with us in the comment section, the company sees all of that. And so, um, you know, when when Matt Pence does a story in Seattle and it, and it does better than a column on Arsenal, you know, the company will pay attention to that and, and will will respect that. So I think that's what's going on is that people are learning that there is a bigger audience for American soccer than 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 most realize. And that that's also an audience that's going to keep growing and potentially significantly growing over the next decade. It was a conversation worth having. It felt a little like we were doing some plugging, but it's definitely, if you are not an athletic subscriber, uh, I, don't know, I don't know how you're doing your sports these days. Uh, there's codes everywhere to get some sort of discount. It's not expensive, and the coverage is absolutely worth it. But as we pivot back to the stuff that you've been covering in the league and talking about growth, and I, I feel like this winter – we have seen a lot of growth in MLS as a as a league and also as a as an entity. Um, not all of it has been good. Uh, we could focus on some of the stuff as far as what's happened uh, as the transfers out, the transfers in. But for me, 
The more interesting thing is the stuff that's going on behind the scenes as it pertains to the front office. We don't know how all that transfer money is going to be spent from Atlanta or what's going to happen with the, the teams on the field until they start playing, which is still a month or so away. So I love that you've been focusing on the off-field stuff, and I, I want to start with the uh, the Andrew Gutman situation. You had a column up on The Athletic uh, describing the, the loan that was happening. He signed with Celtic, just to keep people really quickly up to speed. He was a Chicago Fire homegrown. They, he didn't like the offer that they uh, gave him. He ended up signing in Celtic. Celtic loaned him to Nashville, which is a USL club at the moment, but apparently uh, MLS didn't like that because you, uh, Nashville was about to be an MLS team, and according to your article, they, uh, they are, are already bound by the rules of MLS, even though they're a year away from joining MLS. So the whole loan deal was off. The column was about that. I hope that you have a chance to read it. I'd like to get a little deeper into into what you wrote about, Paul, and and say and ask you, when you were talking with all these different sources and as you were getting the 360-degree coverage, uh, how did MLS look to you after analyzing the entire situation from all perspectives? Well, it's just a very MLS situation. You know, this league is known for interpreting rules as it wants to interpret them and when and how it wants to interpret them to best give the league an advantage. It's a, it's a, an application of rules that every professional sports league in this country would like to have, but really MLS is the only one that has it to the extent they do. So, you know, in this case, you know, they have a, they have a strong case here to say, hey, this is part of our agreement. You can't be signing players without a blessing from the league. Specifically, you've got to make sure that any player you sign, that you're going through the right processes with the league. So, you know, Nashville felt like they were safe and fine to sign the player because it's a USL loan. It's only going to be in USL, and therefore MLS should have nothing to do with it. And MLS's point was, well, that might be true on the surface, but in reality – if you bring this player in and that, then you all of a sudden have leverage over the Chicago fire, if you do want to keep the player, you know, and then, you know, it, it starts to create these situations where, um, you know, rights and, and negotiating leverage and all of that starts to go up in the air. In addition, I think the league feared that it would set a precedent. And that's, that's always the league's biggest concern is, is how do we, ha- how we handle things now may open, uh, open up the doors for later and they were afraid that other European teams would look at this as a, a sign that they can take homegrown MLS players, sign them to contracts on free transfers, and then loan them back to the United States uh, to develop them and grow their value there. And, and they wanted to make it clear that, you know, you might be able to do that. You might be able to loan them back to a USL team, but you're not going to loan them back to one of our league partners, um, especially after we were in negotiations for the same player. So it, 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 I don't think that MLS was in the wrong on that side of it. Um, but I do think the problem with Major League Soccer is there's never consistency in how they rule on things. And so I think, um, you know, a lot of teams feel like the rules are open for interpretation. And, and so they push to try to, uh, to, to take that as far as they can. And, and I, I don't blame any GM in the league for trying to do that. You uh, had a great header in that column that sums up how I feel about MLS management right now, and it's you, you said helicopter general managing. And, you know, in your coverage, you point out, hey, you know what, Nashville didn't cover themselves in glory 
by by doing their due diligence. They also jumped the gun on an announcement, and they obviously hadn't cleared it with MLS. Like it, it almost felt like they forgot that they were going to be an MLS. So, or it, conveniently, they they didn't remember that they were going to be an MLS. And also Chicago was acting like knuckleheads as well and deciding they didn't really want this kid until it turned out this kid might have been worth something, and, and now we want him, so please. So MLS had to kind of parachute in and make everybody and clean up everybody's mess. How much longer is MLS going to be able to get away with that? You, you mentioned that other sports in, in the United States would love to have this kind of power, and they don't, but we're Americans. Just like we uh, kind of want a playoff system, we also want this kind of of management of a league to be done in a certain way, and MLS does not do it that way. And I don't know how much longer in the growth of this this company or this league they can get away with continuing to being able to put their hands on everything as they see fit. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger issue with the league here came on the Chicago side of it. You know, Chicago has had Andrew Gutman in to train with the team um, several times over the past two years when he was a player in Indiana, when he was thriving in Indiana. They've seen him up close. They've seen him in a first-team environment. They've watched him train. And I'm not talking about, like, one training session. I mean, like, in with the first team for a week or two weeks, training every single day, playing 8v8, playing in scrimmages, you know, getting a feel for what this player is all about. After two years of that evaluation, that up-close evaluation, they decided that he wasn't somebody that they saw as a starter for their team, and they valued him, you know, in my discussions with people from the situation, they made the offer the minimum. They were willing to go up to, you know, as far up to 90000 Maybe they'd get close to a hundred, but they didn't really want to get that close. And, and it, realistically, they didn't – they preferred to trade the player than to keep the player. And that's fine if you allow the team to stand up with conviction to that um, evaluation of a player. But the league didn't do that in this case. They didn't allow – Nelson Rodriguez and Velko Ponovich in the Chicago front office to make an evaluation of the player, make an offer at that valuation, and then move on. And, and if, they, if they were trade partners, make a trade. And if not, you know, the player would do what he wanted to do. The, the difference now is in the past, there was never a concern of an international team coming in and taking a player away. So now this player has overseas options. So Celtic comes into the picture, and they make a significant offer, $150,000 a year. That's nothing to sneeze at. It's well above what the fire valued this player at. Where things went wrong was instead of saying, you know what, okay, they value this player more than we do. They haven't seen this player. We're going to let him go to Celtic. All the best. Good luck overseas in Scotland. Good luck getting a work permit. All of that. The league said, no, it's a bad public relations hit for us to lose a player overseas. It's been a trend in the league the last year or two. We're, we're seeing academy players go overseas. We're getting criticized for it. So we're going to pay more. We're going to offer more as a league to keep them in, in, in MLS because we think we can find a team in the league that would be willing to pay this, this, this $150,000 salary. That's where things went wrong. You know, for me, the, the people in the front office in Major League Soccer should not be making offers to players that they don't know, that they haven't seen. They don't run a team. They don't have a roster. Just stay out of it yep. and allow a team to stand up with this conviction. And until that happens, MLS is always going to be limited. And, and we see it. I see it happen all of the time. I see these people getting involved all the time. And it was, it was an essential part of the league's growth through its first two decades. The teams have outgrown it. 
They have full front offices. They have full scouting departments. Yes, there are bad front offices, and yes, there are teams without scouting departments. But the only way they're ever going to improve and catch up with the rest of the league is if the is, is if MLS league headquarters stop trying to help them and stop trying to cover up their deficiencies. And you know, this is where, the, in my opinion, everything turned into more of a mess because now the league gets turned down on one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and now. You have all of these different angles where now the fire looked bad because their offer looks low compared to what their own league was willing to pay, and it just devolved from there. It was, in my opinion, an avoidable situation had the league sat back and allowed the Chicago Fire's offer to stand for their own homegrown player. And, uh, and that's what that, to me, out of this whole thing was the most maddening part, is that this league doesn't understand that in some cases they make it worse by getting involved and it, it was a totally avoidable scenario. And people will point to the upcoming CBA negotiations that will start sometime sometime this year as, okay, well, we got to put that on the player's agenda. Spoiler alert, the player's agenda is probably pretty long, and you can't just throw it on to the player's agenda to do this in the negotiation. So, But if you disagree with me, then take this question and go that way. But my question is, it feels like it's going to be up to the owners and specifically the aggressive owners who are becoming more and more numerous throughout the league to push this pace to get them to stop doing this kind of things. Uh, is, is that something that could happen in the foreseeable future? And when I say foreseeable future, I mean next season, season and a half? You know, I, I don't know because you're right. I mean, these the people who are employed in doing this at league headquarters, they're doing this with the blessing of the commissioner and the commissioner works for the owners. So the owners recognize that, that they benefit from overall control, right? The more you allow teams to become individual actors, the more you allow, um, you know, teams to kind of interpret rules on their own or to push limits and to possibly break away or to fail spectacularly. And I think there's a fear of that. And, and I'm not sure that the owners are ready to get over that fear yet. I think they like having control. You know, my argument is that you can take steps towards more, um, more teams having more power, and you don't need to uh, completely eliminate the power of the league office. You know, the NBA has a league office. The NFL has a league office. They have people right. that approve contracts and deny contracts and help with the paperwork of contracts and you know, in soccer, you can have somebody who's still helping see these transfers through and somebody that the league, the, a team GM can call and make sure, hey, if we do this, are we cap compliant? And that office does all of that right now and does it well. You don't have to give up that power by saying we're not going to let the league make decisions on players anymore. You know, the way they did with the TAM contracts and the way they are in this scenario with Andrew Gutman where a team can't be making contract offers and can't be denying players contracts based on their quote-unquote evaluations of those players. They don't know what those players' values are. That's not their jobs. That's not their expertise, no matter how much they think it is. And, and that's where the disconnect is forming. And I, I don't know that there's enough power yet in, in the, the owners who would force change through. And I don't know that it's high enough on their list. You know, the first mountain to climb here, the first thing to conquer is, to change the structure of this league and how it spends money and where it allocates money. And I think that's the first focus for the owners and for the players. And that's going to be the main focus of this, uh, 
upcoming CBA negotiation next next January. You guys at The Athletic have a, a couple of people on this solidarity payment situation. Uh, you mentioned it a lot in this article. Uh, the Yedlin case, which we've been ho- told the decision is coming down any second now, but that's been now about six weeks that the any second has been. Where are we at with solidarity payments? How far do you think they are away if they are on the horizon for uh, soccer in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what FIFA is going to, to decide, but I can tell you that the league is on board. You know, as soon as their interest in this issue changed, so did the league's position. So I could absolutely see it becoming a part of the way American soccer works. The hard part of interpret, interpretation here is what our clubs do in solidarity and training compensation if a player paid fees to that club already. I think that's where the gray area exists. Because, and, and, you know, there's a lot of debate over chicken and an egg. You know, if, 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 you, if you create solidarity and training compensation, that's the money that will help see these clubs through. And I think there's probably not enough knowledge out there that, you know, these clubs aren't going to be able to sustain themselves on solidarity and training compensation. It's not enough money. And there's so much money in youth sports that it's not enough to pay the salaries of the coach and to, to, to pay all of the fields. Uh, fees and the ref fees and everything that exists in youth sports today. So it's not going to be some mesmerizing, like American soccer generational changing development in the sense of now all of a sudden pay to play will go away. I think that's a myth, but I do think it's a big step forward and I do think it will happen. And I do think it clarifies a lot of these situations. You know, the truth is right now for major league soccer, they are investing a lot of money into their academies. And they haven't seen enough return on that investment. There's two people, there's two parts to that problem. One is for the first decade, you had to expect you weren't going to create a lot of home yep. growth. It takes time to actually develop players. We're, we're, Tyler Adams and Kellen Acosta, th- those are the first real homegrowns in Major League Soccer history. We're going to start seeing more and more of those types of players. Um, and you are going to get first team value out of them. And then you are going to get sale value out of those players if you're willing to do it, right? And then the second part of that is now you would have a protection where if Weston McKinney, who started at age 10 in FC Dallas, goes through the entire seven, eight years of time with FC Dallas Academy and leaves to Germany for free, they would get compensation. And so I I, I think it will be helpful in that sense. I think it will uh, instigate the lower division teams to create academies, which I think is hugely important to the growth of the sport in this country. And I think, would push the sport closer to promotion and relegation somewhere way down the line. Um, so in that way, I think it would be a, a huge change. But I don't want to create this narrative that it would that it would uh, change pay to play. It's but a, that's a, it would be a good thing. No, and it's you, that's a great point, and uh, it's it's one that isn't really brought home enough. Like I feel people think once we open that floodgate, mountains of cash will will trickle down and pay to play <laughs> right. will go. My thing is. We're behind, and I, I feel it's going to take a generation of soccer players, not a generation, but a generation of soccer players uh, to, to kind of go through those growing pains of figuring out what solidarity, pay, solidarity payments are due and what they can and can't do and fix for clubs. But once we get past that, it, it'll be something that's very, very useful and effective for American soccer. But we've got to start the generation clock as soon as possible. Yeah, for sure. And, and these, these are... You know, this is the crazy thing about soccer in this country is it is so far behind. This league is, is not even 25 years old yet. Right. You know, it's it's so young. The academies, I started covering, I was at the Washington Post when academies were created. That's how young it is. You know, like 
I mean, I, I guess it's been a while now that I since I started in the business, but like, it's not been that long. You know what I mean? Like, it's not been that long. So we're only beginning to see the benefits of the initial investment, right? The next steps of investment that are happening now, we're not going to see the benefits of that for another exactly. eight to 10 years, the next cycle players. And so, the, as you said, the sooner you can get some of these changes in, the sooner that we see the benefits of them. And, and you know, I, I do think that, when you take a step back and you look at the growth that's happened for soccer in this country, even if you don't like major league soccer, even if you think it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme and it's against the growth of soccer in America, what MLS and its business has done to the sport in the last 20 years, 20 plus years is crazy. And the growth that's happening in USL right now is a sign of that. And the investment that's happening at, at the youth levels is a sign of that. And, you know, the fact that we're seeing all these young American players going over to Europe, Guess what that's a sign of? That's a sign of the investment that happened at the academy levels. That was U.S. soccer. That was Major League Soccer, whether you like it or not, that drove that growth. So, you know, what will that mean for what the next 10 years look like? I don't know. You hope it means far more Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney's and Christian Pulisic, right? That's the goal, Josh Sargent. You know, these are half of those players didn't come from an MLS academy. Half of them did. But they all came out of uh, the, the American soccer development, the USSDA the growth of the sport in this country, the exposure of the sport in this country that's changed drastically since we were kids, um, you know, that's what we're seeing the results of. And, and I think as we accelerate that growth now, we have to do it knowing that, you know, it is going to take another 10 years to see the results of it. So be patient, and, but, but understand that these are steps that lead somewhere. I wanted to ask you about the national team camp, uh, but you wrote a fantastic, comprehensive number of articles uh, on The Athletic, so I'll point people there. Uh, Burhalter, I feel like, uh, listen, there was not a lot of excitement when he got hired because of the length and because of the, the way that he got hired, but it was, a, it was a promising start, so I'll encourage people to read your stuff, but I will ask you as we start to kind of move to D.C. United a little bit, did you hear anything about uh, his thoughts on Russell Knauss and why he not only didn't feature over the two matches, didn't even dress for the second match? I think he just didn't feel like Russell fit the system. Um, you know, Greg Berhalter is very much about looking for the right fit, you know, for what he, what he wants out of every position. And if you're not a fit for that, if you can't pass the way you need to pass in that role or, um, you, know, ro- you know, rotate in, in the pairings or whatever he's looking for in training, you're not going to play. And I think the other thing to, to think about with, with Greg Berhalter is he's, there's no mystery for Russell. He, he knows. Yeah. You know, he's had conversations with the coaching staff, just as Kellen Acosta did, um, to say, look, this is what we need to see more out of. You know, we, we had you in this camp because we see X, Y, and Z, you know, but getting you in, you need to work on this, this, and this. And, you know, I just think it was a, the fact that, that for the role, the way they played in this midfield, you either needed to be a, a deep-lying passer and a number six role, like Michael Bradley and Will Trapp, or you needed to be kind of a, a forward-thinking um, 8 or 10. Georgie Mihailovic, Christian Rodano, the best example, Sebastian Legette. Russell's really neither of those. He's kind of a destroyer as a number 6. He covers ground. He's a defensive first type of player. It's not really a fit for the way this team played in January. That doesn't mean it's not going to be a fit for the way Greg Berhalter's teams play when the full national team is in. And once you get to, you know, Russell Canoose is much more comparable to a Tyler Adams-style player than he is to Will Trapp. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, we'll see how things change as, as Greg Berhalter gets a hold of, you know, the, the rest of these European-based players. But I think for now, it just it wasn't the right fit for the system. You know, and you, I, I brought up Russell Kanowski because he's my favorite player, and uh, I was pretty taken aback. But I also feel like he was a guy that everybody nationally was like, that's a guy I want to see in the Stars and Stripes. But in your answer, you brought up a great point that was a compliment to Berhalter as well. I really believe that those guys left camp, Canals included, feeling whether they felt good about the experience or not, they know what they have to work on, which is completely different than any national team camp that we have had since pre-Klinsman. And that is a win for the national team in general. I agree. I agree. I think it's a totally different culture and a totally different vibe around this team, you know, on every different level. You know, you're, you're hearing players say, I've never been coached like this before to this level of detail, with this level of clarity. And that's not just, I mean, it is main focus is what they're asked to do on the field and how they train and, you know, what the practice looks like. But it's also in the communication with the coaches away from the field, the video work that they get, the conversations they have. It's a totally different feel. And I would put a caveat. I think there is a number six at DC United who could fit Greg Berhalter pretty well. Oh, snap. Here we go. If he gets some chances to play, and if he plays the way I think he can for the under-20 team, you know, might be a guy who who sneaks onto the depth chart, third or fourth on the depth chart at the number six position. That's Chris Durkin, by the way. Don't don't sell him short. If Ben Olsen gives him a chance, I think he's one of the brightest talents in this country. And, you know, I believe that strongly. And I, I know that the under-20 staff was incredibly pleased with what they saw out of Chris Durkin in camp in, uh, in January when I, when I went down there. Uh, now, you're not, you're not breaking news or doing any scoops, but that was a little nugget there, and that, that was good, Paul. That was very good. I always try to drop a little <laughs> nugget if I can. Uh, Paul Tenorio, thank you so much. And, again, I hope we can, we can talk throughout the season. And uh, please keep doing what you guys are doing over the Athletic. I love the coverage. Well, thanks so much. Anytime you want to have me on, I'm happy to come chat. I, I really appreciate your support from uh, from back when you were getting me a job to, uh, to have me on the podcast. <laughs> that is Paul Tenorio. Uh, <laughs> yes, you can subscribe to The Athletic, as we talked about earlier, theathletic.com. Look for a, a discount rate. There's, there's some all over the place. Before we get to our next guest, I want to just put in your ear that I also do a beer podcast, a collaboration with a uh, mid-Atlantic regional brewery called Flying Dog. If you are familiar with them, you know they make great beer. We don't talk about Flying Dog beers a lot, but we do talk about beer, the lifestyle of beer in our collaboration podcast called Head Retention. You like craft beer? You're a soccer fan. You're an American soccer fan. You're an MLS soccer fan. You definitely like craft beer. Check out the Head Retention retention podcast available on the iHeartRadio app itunes wherever you get podcasts including wherever you got this episode of pitch pass as we turn our attention to the field itself dc united has begun their preseason just did their first half of the preseason in clearwater florida one of the guys that a lot of people have eyes on just to see what he's all about and how he fits into United is rookie Akeem Ward. He joins us right now. Akeem, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Roach. How about yourself? Uh, I'm, I'm very well. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. Uh, and I know you guys just got back today, so I guess welcome home. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good to be back. We've been in hotel for two weeks, so it's good to be home now. Now, now uh, listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... F- 
be glad that you're back home, but I'm not going to feel sorry for you. I've seen everybody's Instagram pictures from the hotel and your balcony shots overlooking the beach. So I'm not going to feel bad that you were in a hotel for two weeks, Akeem. Uh, yeah, I totally get that. But uh, it takes a different aspect to it, not being in your own bed and all that. But it, it was great. It was a great experience. You're used to traveling, I would assume, uh, as you as you were coming up through through your club teams uh, growing up. But uh, was this a different kind of experience for you, being away from home for two weeks uh, in a professional setting? Um, from a professional setting aspect, yeah, it, it was different. Um, training was more intense. Um, you had a lot of free time. Um, in college, yeah, we did a lot of traveling and all that stuff and, and through the clubs. But everything was really structured. And um, in the professional kind of aspect, you, you got to take care of yourself. And then when training comes around, you perform. And then when you have downtime, you take it. Speaking of professional, how much fun was it for you to change your socials all to professional footballer for DC United? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was fun. It was fun. It just something that was uh, added to it. And I just uh, been waiting a while, you know, to, to, to be able to do that. And I'm very grateful to be able to. What was, um, I don't want to say what was the holdup, but since you were drafted, there was a little bit of a downtime between when you were drafted and when you signed. Was there any anxiety or did you always were like, this is the team I'm playing for. We just got to work out some particulars as far as language is concerned for my contract. Um, I, I always thought I was going to sign with them. Um, it was the particulars that were just getting worked out. So things of that sort, but it was, it was a, the right fit. Um, and I love the coaching staff already and, and, and the gym, Dave Castro. We just had a good relationship. And at the same time, I also need to perform during that kind of phase to, to get the contract. But um, I, I kind of was confident enough that I'd be able to perform and do well enough to be able to contribute to the team to get a contract. So walk me through, because uh, I've been reading about you kind of since the combine until now, and then especially after you were drafted to D.C. United. And uh, just walk me through your kind of growing up and where you were. I I know you consider yourself a DMV kid. You did leave the Mm -hmm. area for a bit. So just for people who may not be a little uh, clear on, on your background, where did you grow up? When did you move? When did you come back? Where do you call home now? Mm-hmm. So um, I was born in, in born in Brooklyn, New York, and then I moved out to uh, Tyson's Corner area in Virginia, uh-huh. probably around like four or five. So I wasn't really a New Yorker for very long, and then I came out here, started playing youth soccer, grew up playing uh, for PWSI for a little bit, um, Prince William County, and then yep. I ended up moving out to um, a different team in, in Maryland, Bethesda. Um, played there for most of my youth. Until I was about 14 or 15, where kind of opportunity to play academy soccer came up. Um, and I ended up taking that opportunity, and it, it was out in Minnesota. It was a boarding school. So I ended up spending about four years there. Um, and then I kind of kind of stuck with the Midwest kind of aspect of going to college in Nebraska, Creighton University. Um, and then somehow I found my way into to the combine. <laughs> It's it's an interesting journey, uh, but I mean, you obviously spent your formative years in the DMV. You consider yourself a DC kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I spent. Um, I know a lot of guys around the area, and then through the soccer community, it's very, very small, and um, very, very close to the DMV area with uh, with with the friends and that aspect. Even though I've been away for so long, when I come back, it feels like nothing's changed. 
Are you uh, are you crashing at home uh, while you get your feet under you as a professional? Yeah, currently I am. I'm, my parents aren't making me pay rent, so it's great. <laughs> and that's that's the beauty of it. I mean, look, uh, you're a young guy. You probably want to be on your own. But having said that, it's nice to save a little money, get drafted from your hometown team, so you don't have to worry about that as you as you make your way as a professional. Exactly, exactly. So they've been they've been really good with the the whole process and stuff like that. And me being home, I, I haven't been home for more than two months um, in like eight years. So my mom's very very happy. And I wanted to ask you, and this is for people who may not be aware of the geography of D.C. who are listening outside the DMV, uh, you're, if you're Tyson's Vienna area, that actually is pretty good depending, it, no matter if you end up playing matches for Loudoun, Loudoun United or for D.C. United, uh, because it's kind of centrally located. So between the two stadiums or where Loudoun United Stadium will be, that's, that's kind of an advantage, an unexpected advantage of actually where your parents are living. Exactly. Yeah, it's actually no more than like thirty minutes either direction. So it's kind of in the center of all that, and it's we kind of lived here before. Kind of everything was built up, and Tyson Corner became what it is, and and, and be like the, the kind of the hub for everything with the mall, and then the the train station and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we got here um, just in time before everything was built up. <laughs> and then, now, now everything is, is quite convenient now. Yeah, and now your parents are sitting on a gold mine uh, of a house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have they, uh, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on the Loud United talk for a second. No one really has seen you guys play yet. Those scrimmages that you were doing down in Clearwater weren't televised. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, give me a brief overview on, on how the team looked. I know this is a softball question for you, Akeem. How mm-hmm. did the team look in your first two uh, preseason matches? I think we're looking good. Um, I know that there's really stressed by uh, Ben that we wanted to pick up uh, where they left off last year um, because we got knocked out in the first round, and um, we really wanted to pick it up and have higher aspects. We want to win a championship. So, um, looking at like the team, the team kind of aspect, I thought we played well these past two games. We've had different lineups, um, different guys coming in and out. I was blessed enough to start my first game, yep. so it was it was a different aspect with most of the starters, and it was a different level, and it was uh, it was a great learning experience, and they've been super super helpful. And then this past game, I played with um, the second half, so a little bit more um, maybe trialists you say, and then yep. younger academy guys, but the level was still good. Um, but I think overall it's been very positive, and it's just the hardest part is learning. The system for me, um, just to get into the system of how how we want to play, and then um, just kind of raising it and just performing. And I think that it's going to take a little bit more than two weeks for us to mesh because there's more there's new guys and um, different positions and losing certain players. So I think it's it's coming along well though. You mentioned the the style that Ben wants to play and the system that he wants to implement. What are what were his kind of directives to you to integrate? you into that style uh, as an outside back what are what are the challenges the demands of you uh, in that system um i think it's i think we're playing a more modern style of football nowadays especially as a, a, an outside back we're needed to add to the attack um to unbalanced teams and then that's what they're asking of me um to kind of be dangerous um on the offensive side and then be completely solid and locked down defensively so it's a lot of up and back. You have to be one of the fittest guys out there because mm-hmm. up and back consistently for, for 90 minutes, uh, no letting up. 
Um, and it was just that aspect of learning the positioning where I need to be offensively and defensively, which was really harped on. And um, ben, ben and the coaching staff have really been um, good, good in helping me with that. Um, this might be a question that you can't answer, and if it is, just say, Roach, I, I, I'm not familiar. But last year, uh, I looked at a guy like O'Neal Fisher and saw mm-hmm. how much he bombed forward uh, as to, as an outlet for a switch, for a deep switch uh, or a long switch. Uh, and I look mm-hmm. at you, and from the reports that I've heard out of Clearwater, I'm thinking to myself, well, Keem could feel that fill at least some of that role as well. Have they talked to you about what O'Neal Fisher did last year and, and what you can bring to that kind of recipe? Um, not particularly. It's kind of been the aspect of what they want outside backs in general. Got it. Um, yeah, he brought that. He brought that to the team, and they kind of brought me in because they've seen that I can do that and I can add that to the style of play. Um, but it was pretty self-explanatory, especially when you watch them play. I didn't even need them to tell me. I know he was that type of guy to get up and back and, and, and provide service and provide good defensive uh, aspect. And um, I thought that was just pretty self-explanatory when you when you when you watched, but it was nothing completely harped on like uh, kind of thing. But it was just bring what I bring to the table as well as um, just add to the team. I'm not going to really ask you uh, your impressions of playing with some of these guys. I mean, uh, it's got to be a thrill just to be on the field with Wayne Rooney, let alone being able to combine and, and play on the same team as him. Lucha Costa the same way, the, the national team members. I will ask you about two guys, though. You got run with the first team uh, in the first preseason match so at, at left back. So I assume you got time connecting and combining and start building a rapport with, with Zoltan Stieber. What was, what was your connection like, and did you guys feel like you clicked early because that's the big thing that I took away from the reports that I was getting out of preseason was that you guys kind of mm-hmm. kind of connected quickly. Yeah, we we actually did. Um, we trained certain things in, in practice, so I was actually leading, leading up that week. I was training with him, learning more and more. And, and during the game, he's actually directing me and helping me and being very helpful, and which like helped me get settled into the game, which helped him help me bring him, him yeah. into the game. Yep. So it was a lot of communication and a lot of coaching um, from his aspect as well as the coaches and then me just trying to, to learn and, and adjust as quick as I could. So that a couple couple plays happened right off the bat where we had a connection and it was just good to feel that we trained it and it was like we are applying it onto the pitch. So I, I thought it was a good connection and uh, a good partnership and, and he's, he's been helping me, which was great. The other guy I want to ask you about, uh, because again, I don't want to ask you about the veterans. I feel like as a rookie, you probably don't feel like that's your place, and I totally get that. But uh, the other young guy on the team that the that the fan base is excited about is Donovan Pines. What's been your impression of him? Uh, I'm sure you you probably followed him or seen a lot of him growing up, and especially in college. But now that you guys are mm-hmm. in the same team, what 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 kind of things did you notice about him that has impressed you? Um, I think his personality is this guy is a top guy. Um, like he come in, I'm up five six, and he's six something. I'm like, oh, this guy's <laughs> gonna be a, this guy's gonna be something else. And he's a very, very, very good human being, and uh, nothing but good words to say about him. And then his work ethic as well is is, is next next to none. Um, so I noticed that he was after doing trainings, getting better, throwing his feet out, stuff like that. And um, just like man, I'm impressed how 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 his willingness to work, um, and I think that I I can feed off of that energy. And that's some, that's the type of guy I want to be around. 
and uh, want to improve with. And um, we actually ended up playing with each other yesterday, mm-hmm. and um, it was good. And it's good communication. Yeah, we're both both rookies, but um, our main thing was I told him was like we got to play like men. We can't play like rookies. It doesn't work like that. We have to we have to play like uh, big boys now. And uh, we we kind of took that and um, and ran with it. And I think we had a good partnership and, and it worked out. Um, and so I switched on to the right side. But I, I think um, he's going to do big things. You uh, Did you guys have a chance to kind of talk? Uh, the, to me, the exciting thing for the two of you is you both play defense, but you're not competing for the same position. And you're kind of mm-hmm. both in the same kind of age range and experience level. So did, mm-hmm. was there any commiserating throughout the camp of, hey, look, you know, we're the young guys. We might not start but we're going to be important cogs of this team, not just this year, but in the future. Let's make sure we start that bond right now. No, no, for sure. For sure. You can see how it works with many of the rookies and even some of the trials. We all kind of gravitated towards one another. Um, creating a bond off the field was helped so much on the field, but as well as well on the field. And anytime we're doing drills and stuff, I kind of we try to be partners or um, we try to get close with them and communicate. And if things aren't going well for you on the day, we try to we try to get each other going, and if you're not sharp, we try to get after each other. So it's it's kind of a, a healthy relationship of, of competing, um, which we're trying to instill, which will, will, I think will help us. Who did overall. you who did you room with? Um, I roomed with Pebo. Uh, okay. To do it. Yep. Um, he was actually he was a trialist. Um, great guy. Um, he gave me a lot of advice, and is very 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 helpful to me. Um. But it was it was a good experience, and he's a really good guy. You know, and that's interesting that that they put you two together because he's a he's a guy who came up through the DC United Academy and has played professional mm-hmm. soccer for a number of years now, and uh, mm-hmm. probably a great guy whose brain you can pick about how to be a professional. Exactly, and that's what that's what I was doing. He was giving me a lot of advice, a lot of um, just understanding, and, and even him, he was helpful in aspect of maybe a couple times in practice I was straight passes, stuff like that. He's like, all right, came, it's time to sort it out. Yep. And I, was, I would respond and, and, and do well. And he was, he was on me. It was just positive, which was helpful. It just seemed that he really wanted to see me improve, which, which was, which I really respected out of him. And I was really grateful for, you know, uh, I'm sure you're going to say you're up to play anywhere. Have they, the, the club as management talked to you yet about where they want you long-term or are they just focused on making sure that you could step in either at left back or right back as the situation arises? I think it's just wherever, wherever they need me kind of thing. Um, so like growing up, I was, I was always a, a right-sided guy, whether it was um, outside man, stuff like that. It wasn't until I got older, I played outside back. And then my last two years, I started playing left back in college. So I kind of developed being able to play comfortable on both sides, and they kind of recognized that, that I could bring that to the team. And I think it's just learning both sides of the system because um, it's different on both sides. So I'm just trying to take that information and then wherever they need me. So actually yesterday I ended up playing starting on the left side at left back and then being pushed over to right back. Wow. So it was just it was it was a, it was a quick adjustment cuz i've been doing it for a couple of years now but um just staying um 
being able to change and being able to adapt. So that's 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 what I want to be able to do, and I think they can see I can I'm able to do that. You, uh, I'm sure you grumbled uh, as a right side midfielder when they shuffled you back to defense at one point, and I'm sure you grumbled again when they were like, "We're going to try on the left side." But that had to have been a big advantage, and, and you know, not knowing the particulars, but knowing the general aspect of it, it had to be one of the attractive things about drafting you, knowing that you could be comfortable on either side. So, yes, you probably grumbled, but it did pay off, and that extra work is, <laughs> it resulted in where you are today. That is completely correct. If it wasn't for um, Tim Carter, Alex, Chad, Tim, saying, you know, we're gonna, you've been great at outside mid, but we're going to put you at outside back. And then um, Johnny Torres and Alma Bovich at Craig saying, you know what, Mike, we've seen you develop and we think we think you could play on the left side kind of thing. I was really fighting that one. But um, uh, at the end of the day, um, I did it my junior year and then they said, you know, we're going to keep you there. I said, you know what, let's just make the best of it, see if I can improve, um, do my thing and just add to the team. And then I kind of end up going with it and being able to play both sides and, and grateful for all three of those guys because without them, I wouldn't have reached uh, where I'm at right now. <laughs> Seriously. So let's uh, let's wrap up with Loudoun United. Um, it's an interesting situation because it's a team that doesn't exist at this point in, in the mm-hmm. tangible sense, but it's probably a team where you're going to see a good amount of minutes this year. What has been uh, the, the the conversations that you've had with, with management, not just Ben, about the situation in Loudoun United and, and what you can kind of expect, or at least when you're going to get told a decision on what the plan is for you for the 2019 season? Um, I think it's kind of up in the air right now. Um, nothing's really kind of been set in stone. Um, I think it depends on how I perform and, and how it should be, um, depending on what happens and where I go and where I develop. Um, there hasn't been too many talks about it. Um, but whatever happens, that doesn't matter where I'm at. I'm going to, I'm going to work and just try to improve. Um, people see kind of going down to USL teams as a negative. It's not at all. No. It's, it's, yeah. You still have to, you still have to show well. And you still have to be willing to improve. Um, so whatever happens, whatever situation, I think I'm just going to, uh, just like I told uh, Ben and I'm just going to grind and just do what they need me to do. And when my chance comes and, uh, God willing, uh, I'm going to take it and and run with it. Um, it. It really is a situation where whatever happens, happens. But the good thing is, it says it right on your Instagram, professional footballer. And that is an awesome thing. So congratulations for that, Akeem. And thank you for the time. I'm looking forward to seeing you at some point with, in the black and red. And either way, some point playing in the DMV professional soccer, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Show information, go to pitchpass.com.